You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I'm still a young enough professor that I don't remember a time before critical thinking was a buzzword in the profession. Back in the fall of 2000, when I first started teaching college, John Bean convinced me that the goal of core curriculum classes should be to introduce novices to the practices and standards and the thinking of university disciplines, and I still think that's about right. A decade later, concerns had shifted to helping students engage in metacognition, the examination of one's own thought processes, and I'm still a fan of that one as well. But sometime in the last decade, if you believe certain social psychologists, something went seriously wrong in American epistemology through entire limbs of the body politic. And in response, a new call went forth. Critical thinking became less a bonus and more of a bulwark, something to save us from the idiocy that so many of us invite into our eyeballs through the phone screens. Dr. Bethany Kilcrease's book, Falsehood and Fallacy, engages in that rescue mission at the undergraduate level, using the tools of the historian to improve our habits of thinking. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to have Dr. Kilcrease on the show today. Bethany, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you for having me on. It's um, like saw your tagline, what you're unapologetically confessional and oh yeah, yeah, actually intellectual. I, I describe myself as a confessional Lutheran first and foremost. Excellent, excellent. So, and I, I hope I'm unabashedly intellectual. I teach <laughs> college students, so uh, so yeah. Thank you. It's uh, hopefully I found some kindred spirits, and thanks for having me on. Very good. We uh, we often refer to our audience as the most uh, literate audience on the internet, and uh, I, I don't think they'll disappoint. It's a tall order. Okay. Indeed, indeed. Your opening chapter in this book situates this project in a worthy tradition, uh, that tradition of offering liberal education to citizens of a democracy for the sake of that democracy and its flourishing. So before we get into the particulars of what that education might look like, have you found that your own students receive that aim of education as self-evident, as misguided, or as something completely different? Absolutely not, Nathan. I don't think I have ever met. Uh, maybe, you know, I, I shouldn't say that. You should never say never, right? But um, <clears throat> I don't know that I have ever met a student, myself included, who has come into college and said, uh, you know, I, I am looking for an education for the sake of democracy because I want to, you know, become a better citizen of um, my country and frankly I think most students as they come in don't know what a um, liberal education is and why should they? I mean I certainly didn't know when I was a high school student. Um, so I think if we want to think about students coming in with those kind of ideals we certainly can't assume that they're just going to automatically know what they are. Uh, most students when they come in they're interested in college for finding a job, right? It's a ticket to a middle middle class kind of existence or something like that. Or they want a college experience, which I find oftentimes involves uh, maybe playing a sport, which is great. I like sports. Um, I'm wearing a Boston Red Sox cap right now, as, as you can see. So nothing wrong with that. But I think where, and I don't want to rag on um, high school teachers here for sure. They, they, they got an awful lot to do, you know? And um, certainly their standards are, are set by the state and everything. So I'll, maybe I'll rag more on college professors than us who teach first year uh, classes. 
that we need to do a better job making explicit uh, what a liberal education is, why that's important, and uh, what that has to do with living in a liberal democratic society. Uh, I have found, and this is really recent, right? So more recent than the book being published, uh, but that after the recent uh, full-scale Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine, talking in first-year history classes about what may well be, uh, maybe, I don't know, hesitant to use the term, but uh, another kind of cold war between liberal democracies versus autocracies, that these ideas have maybe a little bit more resonance. So at least in history and, and maybe related areas, that might be kind of a hook to get students thinking about it. Um, but I do think that we just need to be, even for students in high school, first year college classes, uh, teaching more what a liberal education is, why they should be concerned about that for the sake of democracy, what democracy is even, and why that's a relatively fragile thing in world history if we want to maintain it. Well, well looping back to, you know, recent events, I mean, you know, to what extent, if at all, have recent, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the governor's election in Virginia and, you know, a lot of recent political discourse has been about specifically the politics of education. Do, mm -hmm. Does that filter into our college students at all, or is that pretty much something that political operatives concern themselves with? You know, I've seen it most with secondary ed students, you know, students. So, I mean, I teach a lot of in um, history professor, and I, I actually also do, um, have recently started teaching our equivalent of a, a freshman rec comp class. So we, we call it inquiry and expression. And until the class went away, I used to teach uh, what was called our humanities class, which is basically it was functionally kind of like a great book slash Western Civ type uh, sophomore experience course <clears throat> that is no longer required. But uh, in those courses, I would encounter a lot of education students and in history classes, especially too. And in the school of ed, they're definitely getting, they're, they're hearing about that stuff, right? And so they are asking, and in my historiography class with my senior level students that I was just teaching, uh, we definitely got into things like uh, critical race theory, um, the debates over that that we're hearing uh, in state legislatures and even nationally around the country. Uh, what exactly is that? Let's actually uh, drill down into the definition of what this is from the people who advocate for it, as opposed to being, you know, taking sound bites from people who are opposed to it. That's what you should, I think, always do, right, is make sure that the definitions that you're giving is one that this person who holds that belief would agree with, right? So you want to do that. And then talking about uh, what the debate is and you know, what they might encounter in the classroom in terms of uh, parents and politics and things like that. So short answer, I guess. Um, some students are very aware of it. If they're in education, they're, in my experience, hyper aware. Students not in education, not so much aware of that. That makes good sense. That makes good sense. I want to talk a little bit about uh, one tendency in the book, and I'm not sure whether it bothers me more than it assures me or whether it assures me more than it bothers me. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to clarify this for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you assume throughout the book that its readers, whom you address as college students consistently, that those readers are mainly going to be using web-based electronic resources for their research. Now, I, I tend, when I teach, to blend requirements when I assign research writing, requiring some peer-reviewed sources, and allowing or even requiring some more Wild West kinds of 
electronic sources. So you know this is a big debate among those who teach. So make your case. Why gear a book like this towards electronic reading rather than sending students back to the stacks? Okay, so, oh, you know, I mean, that kind of, to, it's a good question, but to a degree that kind of stabs me in the heart, you know, it kind of turns just a little bit, because I certainly didn't intend to um, make it sound as though students should not be going to the stacks or looking at print resources. So, man, if that if that impression came off to everyone, I guess I feel real bad about that, because in my, in my own assignments, I, I, I think always actually require, like, I guess you, a mixture of sources. And I'll say, you got to have <clears throat> so many uh, monographs, you got to have so many journal articles. And oftentimes I actually put a limit on what I'll call digital born sources, not necessarily online sources, right? Because at our, it, I'm from a relatively small uh, college. And so, you know, at our uh, college, we don't necessarily have the kind of hard copy access that a big state university might have. But we do have a lot of ebooks, right? That students can get through the library. So, which are, you know, would be in hard copy if they were at, say, Michigan State or a bigger school. So, I don't want to say you can't use the ebook, right? Just because it's in an e form. Right. And then, the certainly, uh, digital databases have right. a lot of the scholarly articles that exactly. are peer reviewed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I'll say you can only use maybe two digital born, one or two digital born sources, depending on the length of the. Of yeah. The I like that term. I like that term. It's like a percentage of the of the sources. But so anyway, so I, I wouldn't intend to do that. But in terms of, you know, defending the overall drift of the book, focusing more on online sources, I guess for me, that's a matter of practicality, because I do know that the first impulse is going to be not to run to our stacks and not to go dig into, you know, let's see, let's just run down the, the, the bookshelf here and see what's up there. Let's go to the, do the journals and pull them off the shelf, you know. Um, even when I was in, man, I guess I'm even old now, but even when I was in college, I mean, that's what I did, but is go to the, the library first. But um, I do know that's not the case anymore. They're Googling stuff. Um, and that's, you know, not necessarily bad as a way to start. But I'd like to be able to give them some tools to do that in a critical way, in a metacognitive way, so that they're actually thinking and reflecting on what they're doing. And also, obviously, in assignments saying you're also going to the stacks, but when you're going to your first impulse, which is going to probably be to Google or look online, uh, you've got the tools that you need to evaluate what you're coming across. Right? And also, I really hope that the book is seen as being not exclusive to online or digital born sources, but that I, I really think the principles could apply to anything print as well. So, oh, you you have entire chapters on evaluating monographs. So right, I, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get to that. Like I said, like yeah, I said, yeah, just, yeah, just just to be clear to listeners. Or yes, about, yes. I yeah, I, I didn't mean to give the impression that yeah. it's exclusively. Uh, it's just more than some of my more uh, you know clutch your pearls and mourn the fall of the republic colleagues would tend to prefer. <laughs> well, I'm you know I'm sympathetic to the clutch your pearl colleagues. I'm not been sympathetic to that, but. <laughs> You know, I'm out there limiting online sources too, but um, I, I guess um, on the other hand, I'm trying to be, you know, prudent and practical and saying, look, if you're going to go out there in the, I think you use the word, I don't know, wild west, in the wild west of the internet, you know, here's the six shooter that you're going to need, you know, when you're encountering the bad guys out there or what have you. 
No, that makes good sense. That makes good sense. Now, one manifestation of that grand shift in the ways that we know, and this is a book of epistemology as much as anything, but that shift comes when social media links supplant Google searches as the main ways that people get their information online. Now, in your experience, to what effect, to what effect no, to what extent, pardon me, has this crept into coursework? Because I know certainly people my age, uh, and you know, to give a sense of my age, Google came around when I was a senior in college, uh, tend to, yeah, get their news stories from their Twitter feeds, from their Facebook feeds, from those sorts of places. But when I grade papers, what I tend to see is the first result on a Google search. <laughs> so, I mean, to what extent has, to what extent have, pardon me, social media crept into coursework? And to what extent does co coursework continue ex to exist as sort of a separate realm? Yeah, you know, I think based on what you're saying and just based on some cultural references, we must be about the same age. I'm <laughs> um, because I feel like we're kind of in the same place there in terms of when Google rolled out and things like that. You know, I, I, I doubt that you're missing some kind of major cultural phenomena as it rolled past, especially given that I'm pretty clueless about those. Um, like who would have thought that mullets would have come back into style, right? And, and yet I saw a number <laughs> rolled by on graduate. So you are, you, right? you so, should see my college's baseball team. I'll just yeah, say so that. Like back <laughs> of, of cultural trends, right? But um, yeah, so I would say, first of all, in my, you know, my experience, you're right. Uh, first result on Google sources are much more common uh, in terms of what I'll see. And in fact, what I've started to see lately, which is a little bit weird, uh, I mean, I, I shouldn't say weird, I guess, but just interesting, is um, students actually just, for the citation, just putting Google. Oh, goodness. My students have yeah. been doing that for a decade. Okay, I, yeah, no, I'm just that, that, that's a stock part of my uh, research okay, that's just, lesson. Is what, what, when you cite a source, the name of the source is not Google. Okay, okay yeah. <laughs> relatively new for me but just okay you know, yeah yeah um, I, maybe i've been unlucky <laughs> you know, once you type into google and go back and walk, and walk it back but um but yeah you know i don't know maybe it, it's it's just me but i actually have seen a, some you know it's where it's happened where students have been putting in tweets or they'll say facebook and it's like well what 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 on facebook in the same way that i've started and now i started to see the google first but now it's just Twitter or something, which right, I gotcha, I gotcha. That you can't cite a tweet. I mean, you 100% can. I mean, if you look at the latest edition of you know the Chicago style manual, they actually have in there you know how do you cite a tweet in your footnotes among a gazillion other things. So obviously you can do that where it's a relevant source, but it might not be relevant if you're just looking for what's trending on. Twitter related to some key term, right? So right. Example, I, guess I, I guess what occurs to me is that, you know, when students are presented with something that didn't come off of Instagram, and I'm going to go to young people, social media, because Facebook, Facebook is for old people, but. <laughs> yes, it is. You're right. But, you know, when, when they get that assignment prompt from a professor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, they're not going to scroll Instagram long enough to find something on it when they can just search for Google or when they can just search with Google. So, I mean, I, 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 that might be, you know, one of the things that's going on there. I do think it's interesting though, that, you know, so much of uh, the body politic uh, does use social media as the main 
initial source of news, right? I mean, and you know, this this is one of those things that certainly isn't original with social media. Uh, you know, I mean, as, as long as there have been cable news networks, which is, you know, what, 25 years at this point. Uh, and, and, you know, in the plural, obviously CNN's older than that. But as long as there have been a plurality of, 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 of cable news networks, people have been siloed in what comes to them. Uh, but I, I, I do think that, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Discord and all of these social media really do turn the volume up on that. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the, um, I'm not sure, I mean, depending on what courses you're teaching, you might see more of that, like I think in poli-sci and things, so I just... That makes good sense. In my world history class, I was like, I cannot into conscience as a modern Europeanist, <clears throat> not kind of to a degree throw out what we're doing and say, we're going to do something instead for a research project on the Russo-Ukrainian war. And so that's, I mean, it's trending, right? It's happening. And so students were looking at, to get their most recent news at on Twitter, right? To see, which actually makes sense, right? Because you've got speeches coming out from the major figures. They're being posted up there. Um, it's the TikTok war, right? I mean, I, I, I've heard that phrase. So there it's, you know, it's, it's not that they're necessarily totally off base in that, impulse, which is interesting, but it's that you have to be careful again and make sure that you have the tools to discern what you're looking at. That makes good sense. That makes good sense. Now, when you dig into the processes that students should sharpen when they read, uh, you work with some standard distinctions between subjective and objective claims, between facts and opinions, and ultimately between opinions and interpretations. And again, you know, these are, these are pretty standard, you know, uh, first year writing distinctions. Uh, one question that occurred to me, uh, and actually I wrote this uh, question set up before, you know, one of these leaked to the press and took over the news cycle for a week and a half, but uh, a particular kind of writing that students sometimes engage in historical and other writing is the writing that Supreme Court justices do, and those things are called opinions. So when you make reference to those, are those opinions but not opinions, uh, or <laughs> How do you distinguish between, well, between opinions and opinions? Yeah, well, this just got super relevant, didn't it? This just blew it up. It did indeed, yeah. In a really huge way. <laughs> yeah, so, the, you know, leaked draft opinion on Dobbs versus Jackson, um, what have you. Uh, yeah, so on this is the page 20s or something, you know, I talk about an opinion, and I, I think this is how if you ask your average person on the street how they define an opinion, I think this is probably about what they would say, that... It's a subjective statement and maybe they wouldn't say subjective, but, you know, just they would say something like that, that, you know, can't be proven or disproven based on objective evidence. I, I, I think that's about right. But on the other hand, there are other uses and definitions of the word, too. Right? So, of course, the Supreme Court or other courts will give opinions and those kind of opinions are explanations of cases, hopefully uh, not leaked, um, but they'll, you know, then we're gonna summarize the facts of the case and they're going to lay out for you the explanation of why the justices have ruled in whatever way uh, that they have done. So basically it's you know going to explain the reasoning behind the judgment in a court case. So you're the English professor, right? So you're more the grammar person than me. So I mean, this, we got the same word, uh, the same, you know, letters, the same pronunciation referring to different things. So I mean, it struck me as kind of a homonym. Is that, is that what 
Would you call that a hallmark? Um, I, I mean, I, I'd call it a, uh, I mean, yeah, homonym would work. Homonym would work. I mean, I, I would just talk about, you know, terms being part of different vocabulary systems. Yeah, different. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, the reason this, this came across as interesting to me is that, uh, you know, when I, when I teach my freshman writing classes, uh, one of the things that I'm often contending against is a tendency to bifurcate all utterance into fact and opinion. And you hear me over pronouncing it because that's what I do in my classroom to get my students to pay attention to what I'm doing. Right. Uh, but you know, the, uh, I, 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 like I said, the difficulty that I run into is that if I tell students to articulate an argument for a reader, their first impulse is to say, Oh, we're just writing our opinion then. And I say, well, it's, it's not quite that it's a, you know, an opinion is a report on what's going on in your mind. An argument gives your reader reasons also to have that same thought. So, I mean, they're related to be sure, but they're not identical, right? Yeah. So, like I said, you know, I thought it was interesting because uh, I, I really do think that, and I'm trying to think, you know, where students would pick it up most decisively in high school. I, I think it might be in civics classes or history classes or places like that, you know, this, this very strong binary that everything that is written down is either a fact or an, an opinion. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's, I guess what's interesting for me is that my challenge is always to introduce them to a third and a fourth and a fifth possibility yeah. for human utterance. Yeah. Does that, does that make some sense? No, it does. Yeah. And thanks for um, expanding on that actually. Yeah. I mean, that, I think you're 100% right in how you talk about, and that's a really good point that students do tend to um, want to have this very black and white binary view or it's a fact or it's an opinion. Right? Well, and, and, and when people write their Jeremiads about the downfall of American education, one right. of the things, one of the commonplaces, I'll, I'll call it that, that they mm -hmm. tend to go to is that you know, when students are given statements, they can't distinguish between the facts and the opinions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I look at the list that students are supposed to sort into those two piles, I mean, some of them are neither fact nor opinion, but they are arguments. And yeah. I think, well, I mean, you know, right. that might be part of the part of the problem the problem <laughs> yeah, exactly. is, is that it's a a uh, you could have posed the question better. I'll put it that way. <laughs> that's that's more di diplomatic than I was about to say. So I'll I'll, I'll stick with that. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, poorly worded questions, one fun segment of this book has to do with the crap test, which is how I pronounce it in my mind. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I became a sheep every time I read that on the page, but, <laughs> um, but it's a fun mnemonic uh, you offer for evaluating public sources. Uh, so walk us through those initials and somewhere in there, say a little bit about the extent to which responsible day-to-day -day online readers who are not researching for a college writing assignment might benefit from this crap test. Okay, right, yeah. So someone like me, right, who's just looking at stuff and not writing a college research paper. Yeah, so okay. Uh, crap test, right. So that's a, you know, acronym, uh, C, right, currency, R, relevance, A, authority, A, two A's, accuracy, um, P, purpose. I did not, to be clear, did not at all come up with this. This has been around for years, right? Um, a group of librarians, um, I don't actually think I know their names, but some librarians at Chicago State, Chico, <clears throat> came up with this. 
years back to better evaluate sources, right? And because it's, it sounds, well, maybe cute isn't the right word for crap, right? But because it sounds fun, I guess, okay? So it's an acronym that people are gonna remember. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a number of these different uh, little cutesy acronyms out there that basically do the same thing. So if you don't like the crap test, there's other ones, but the content of them is basically the same, right? Where you're gonna want to look for uh, these five things, right? basically currency, relevance, authority, accuracy, and purpose. And so currency we're talking about is it current, obviously, in terms of timeliness of the information relevance. Uh, is the content actually relevant to what you're researching, a topic that you're engaging with uh, authority? You know, so who wrote it? What are their credentials? Is it like <clears throat> JoJo down the street? Whenever I teach, like the, like this, the random person, I always call JoJo. Right. I don't know why it's just my, it's like joking on the screen. For, for me, it's Bubba. So I think yours it's is better. Okay. Yeah. Bubba, Joker, I, don't know. I also <laughs> teach in Georgia. So I, yeah, I, don't, I teach in Northern in Michigan, West Michigan. So I don't know why, why, why Jojo, like, why does he have two names? I don't know. Right. And like when I teach history of China, it's like Z H O U Jojo, but like, it still sounds the same basically. So, I gotcha. I gotcha. Like it's still Jojo, but anyway. Okay. And then you got like, you know, accuracy. So what, what's the reliability, the content and purpose? Um, you know, why was it produced? What biases might there be? What's the goal? Okay, so can I kind of talk about, you know, why might somebody like myself, right? So say I am scrolling through the Facebook. So I'm old. So I got a Facebook page, right? I know none of these kids. As do I, as do I. Right? They don't got Facebook, <laughs> have Facebook because they're, you know, they're all on the Instagram, you know, being the kids or whatever. But so you're looking and you're seeing something. And it's a it's a good checklist for anybody, uh, I would think, just to kind of mentally run through. So just I don't know, like just to give you an actual example with myself from this was maybe several weeks ago, or something I don't know. So I'm like looking through the social media on Facebook, and I see this um, this like an article. It seems like a lot of people are sharing it, so it's kind of like quote unquote trending in that sense and it was on some new COVID variant right I'm like oh no oh crap right no pun intended I guess that oh this is a COVID variant and so I have this like split second panic right because it looks really bad based on I think it was the lambda variant or something based on the on the title and I click on it and I'm like oh wait this is from like months ago this is not <laughs> this is not even current anymore so you know I could have saved myself at least a, a split second of uh, momentary panic about having to go into lockdown again had I actually taken a closer look and seen, you know is this actually current is it you know going to be something I need to be concerned with in that way <clears throat> when it comes to you know relevance I guess well just as look at what we were just talking about, right? Is what you're looking at really relevant to what you're researching? So if you are gonna be talking about, going back to our discussion, Supreme, the Supreme Court and Supreme Court opinions, probably what you don't wanna do is pick up a copy of my book because that's a different kind of opinion I'm talking about. I in no place in the book <clears throat> talk about Supreme Court opinions. So you're gonna to want to make sure at the source you're looking at actually is really covering uh, what you are looking into. Right? And I mean, there's, you know, like the case of Supreme Court opinions or whatever, but we might also be talking about things like 
I don't want to use more COVID examples really, but <clears throat> just generically speaking, no vaccines or side effects or anything like that, right? So make sure you're talking about like the right vaccines, the right side, you know, make sure that's actually relevant to what the questions that you're that you're asking. I'll try not to use any more COVID examples because I'm sure- No, 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 you're perfectly free to. I, I do have a follow-up question on that because one of the, one of the uh, A's in the crap is uh, accuracy. And, and yeah. the, the question occurs to me since so much of our scientific knowledge, and I mean, everybody, I mean, from- yeah. you know, the, uh, the, the head researchers at the, you know, World Health Organization on down to the first year biology students, since so much of our knowledge comes to us via testimony rather than by direct experiment. Right. And, you know, I'm kind of using philosophical rhetorical terms here. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, the accuracy, it seems to me, is often going to come down to this source versus that source rather than this source versus my own laboratory experiment. So, I mean, you know, when it comes down to that, do we just revert to the other letters or, you know, I, it, it seems like accuracy might be an ultimate aim rather than a criterion. Does that, does that distinction make sense? No, it does. I think one additional thing to throw in there that um, maybe you're hinting at, but didn't maybe quite mention is, you know, science is, is provisional by definition. And I think that's been a big problem throughout this pandemic and this crisis is that, you know, it seems like we keep getting, you know, I say we, you know, we people who are, I, I assume, I don't, I don't know, Nathan, uh, maybe you do have like a PhD in biology or something that I just don't know about. Nope, but, English but, literature. <laughs> I didn't do that much of a deep dive into your background, but um, <clears throat> for we non-science people, you know, it just seems bewildering the number of, you know, seeming flip-flops quote unquote, on, you know, wear masks, don't wear masks, is it on surfaces, is it not on surfaces, is it, you know, how many months do you need before you need a booster, do you need a booster, do you need a booster, you know, and part of that, I think, can look like, <clears throat> well, science is not um, accurate, or to get to the credibility, these scientists, you know, whoever, experts, you know, uh, Fauci or whoever, are not actually credible because they keep changing what they're saying. And instead, I think what we need to keep in mind is that this is all provisional, right? And so as more data is rolling in, and this is all really new, we're going to wind up with a lot of changes in terms of conclusions. So things are only maybe provisionally accurate. Um, no, that makes good sense. And, and, I, and I think part of it is that and, and I'm trying to think of particular, you know, narratives that that inform this. But I mean, it seems like we have kind of a stock character in our pop culture repertoire, right? Which is the opportunist uh, who takes whatever position is of personal advantage. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, between a dozen political elect or between a dozen presidential elections and a dozen such movies and a dozen tv series where you've got you know the uh and and, and, I, and I guess it is the defense attorney that's kind of the stock character for this right yeah, uh sure. the defense attorney who basically takes on like a chameleon uh mm -hmm. whatever is to the advantage for winning a case right uh because we've got that stock character in the back of our imaginations i think that we have a temptation to map that character onto any public figure right and so i mean you know i and i don't have a good answer for that uh, but <laughs> I, I think it's a heck of a question. 
Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, had, the book was obviously, it was basically written prior to the pandemic and I was able to do a little bit of kind of going back once things had happened to make it a little bit more current. But um, I think had, you know, it's one of those things that I wish I would have written it a year or two later than I did because I would have actually done a lot of things differently. And one thing that I think I would have done when talking about accuracy is I would have tried to have do a little bit more of a deep dive when we're talking about scientific accuracy and like I said, provisional accuracy. And, you know, in which case then you're gonna want to, like you said, like, you know, you mentioned earlier, rely on some other aspects of the crap test. I would say, you know, with the, with the crap test, it's not necessarily, you know, all of them equally for every, you know, you might have to look at way one more than the other when looking at a source or evaluating something, right? Um, when we talk about in, if I'm assigning a research paper or something, you know, oftentimes we say that the most current secondary source is the best one, but on the other hand, you might have a, a classic or just a really good source where they have maybe not a lot of them updated in the field, uh, in which case, you know, the currency might matter less than the other aspects. And, and see, I'm an old curmudgeon when it comes to that. I, I often tell my literature students, go to the scholarship from the mid 20th century before publish or perish became a thing. Uh, right. Because I mean, there is just so much junk scholarship in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, of course, in the in the in the decades that have ensued since that, um, I, I tell them, I mean, be aware of that stuff, because I mean, if you go on to grad school, you're going to have to. But yeah. uh, when, when yeah. it comes to, I mean, the really important questions to pose when you're doing, you know, literary historical or literary critical research, uh, a lot of times you'll find better stuff before publish or perish. Yeah. No, but sure. that's, an, that's another conversation. I do want to talk about monographs because now I'm, I'm feeling okay. guilty about my early question. Oh, let's, uh, let's, do <laughs> let's do this. Yeah, because I mean, I, I found a kindred spirit in your section on teaching students to engage with scholarly monographs. And I think your guidelines here are also helpful for digging into academic journals. So, I mean, how have your students responded to the notion that, unlike so many textbooks, monographs and journal articles do not attempt to start from zero, but they begin with the conversation that preceded them? Okay, I'm sorry, can I just take it back just one step a little bit? Yeah, by all means, by all means. Welcome back, okay. Um, I just wanna say that I think contrary to the expectations of maybe some of us, college students, including first year students, can read academic monographs, okay, and journal articles, okay? They don't just have to read textbook. I'm not, I guess I'm not saying just, I don't wanna put down textbooks. I mean, I kind of, <laughs> right? So, I mean, ooh, slam on me, but you know, they, they can do this and it's about teaching the genre and you know, raising them up to it and giving them the scaffolding that they need to hang on to while they're reading. <clears throat> it's about training, just like you'd be training for a sport. So I think, you know, to get back to your question then. Okay, I think students are definitely open to the idea that once you teach them what a monograph is, because <laughs> it's, a, it's a cool new word, right? It's jargon. Um, so it, we need to approach it as jargon and um, teach what it is. And if they want to use it, I guess fine. Or just say a book. I mean, my students usually just say book, that's fine. But they, I think, are really open to the idea that they don't just exist in a vacuum. I mean, as though anything does, but that it's this larger conversation and they 
you need to be part of it. So it's another key that you're giving them to help them understand how to read this book and unlock it. And I guess I should just say that in terms of a lot of how I now teach uh, reading and writing the classroom, uh, I just need to give, I guess, a quick shout out. Um, I've been influenced by uh, my mentors and colleagues, Dr. Gretchen Rumer, and uh, who directs our retcon program at Aquinas, and Julie Bevins, the director of our writing center, who are just awesome with this stuff. <clears throat> but anyway, so, you know, I think the idea that I lay out in the book that it's a little bit like you're at a party and you're walking into a conversation and people are talking about stuff. And at first that can be a little hard to know what's going on, but it makes sense that something is happening before you get there, right? And you have to catch up to it. So when I'm teaching monographs, one way that I like to do it in class, um, especially with maybe first year, like 200 level type classes, is I like to, and I think I talked about this in the book, maybe I can't remember now, but I like to do group work in class. So I you know, will have an assigned monograph and I kind of rig it, right? So, you know, because not all authors are equally explicit or clear about here's what I'm setting out to do. Here's what I'm arguing. Here's, you know, my, so I kind of rig it and I pick one. Like in my history of China class, I have them read this book by Sam Adshed, um, Tung China, The Rise of the East. And is this the best, the greatest book ever on Tong Dynasty China? No, it's not. But he's super clear about, I'm engaging with um, Andre Gunder Frank, this other historian in this book, right? And here's my beef with him. And here's where I agree. And here's how I fit into the historiography and all of this. And so I rig it and then we do, you know, they read the book, right, or sections of it actually, they don't quite read the whole thing. And then we get to class and we break up and one group maybe does the subject and the goal of the book. And then they're all supposed to be also thinking about how they would maybe summarize the book in like a paragraph too. One group then does like what's the thesis of the book, what's the main argument, what's the methodology. And then one group does the historiography, right? So that's, I say oftentimes, the most difficult part, because again, like if you walk into a conversation midway through, it's sometimes hard to catch up on it. But if you rig it, it does help a little bit. And then the more you read, the easier it gets, just like the more you converse with a certain group of people, the easier it is to jump into a conversation. And then I usually have them all doing this together on a Google Doc, right? So they'll be, you know, the one group, they'll be all working together, and the whole class has access to it. And then we finish, we get back into the whole class. Kind of section and they present their part of you know what they've done and the rest of the class can chime in if they want to add something they can you know respectfully uh, contribute or critique and add on to the google doc themselves and then we put it together we discuss it and then they go home and they work on they have that as a sort of reference document and then they can work on their individual crises and then the next time we read maybe a monograph or something, maybe in a different class, even like an upper, more upper level class, like a 300 level class, then they're able to jump into it and maybe tackle that historiography section on their own. And they've had some practice doing it. They've already trained with teammates, so to speak. So they're a, it's a little less foreign and they've got some more background on it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, when I do 
journal articles with uh, sophomore literature students. And we have two semesters of rhetoric and then we move on to literature. Um, one of the assignments that I, that I give that my students utterly hate, I, I'm not gonna pretend that they love it, uh, but it's good for them. Uh, is, uh, you know, I, I assign a pair of journal articles and their task is to read both of them and then uh, tell me which one is right and why. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the habit of mind that I want them to get into there is precisely what you're narrating just then is, you know, thinking about these not as things that I find that agree with me, but as part of a conversation that you're not a part of yet until you read your way into it and then write your way out of it. And so, you know, the, I, I definitely like that, uh, that idea of finding sources that very explicitly, um, yeah, I mean, name the conversations that they're part of or that, that, uh, what, what, it, and see my, my, my historian colleagues right now are disapproving of me because I've forgotten their phrase, but the, the, they, uh, they do the historiography. What's the verb for the historiography? The first chapter of a history book verbs the historiography <laughs> I, I, i'm not sure i'm a historian oh okay 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 that, that's all right that maybe it's just my uh historiography i don't uh, yeah maybe it's just my college's uh history no. professors that's <laughs> but but uh, yeah they'll talk about this book you know after it verbs the historiography it da, 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 and anyway I'm, I'm gonna think about it as soon as we're done recording of course but ask one of my colleagues down the hall i don't know <laughs> Well, I want to spend some time uh, thinking and talking about fallacies. Uh, fallacies occupy about a third of your book. And some of the passages that made me scratch my head called things fallacies that I might call intellectual vices or bad historical tendencies or just plain misguided thinking, but not necessarily fallacies. So let's start here. When you write the word fallacy, what does that noun mean? Okay, yeah, good question. So I'm using it more broadly than somebody who is a philosopher, I think would probably use it. Although, shout out to my philosophy colleague, Dr. Dan Wagner, who's an awesome Thomist philosopher who um, kind of went through the draft of this with me and everything. Um, but anyway, so I'm using it uh, in a little bit broader of a sense. And I'm basically taking the definition from, I guess I know you guys can't see, but I've got this book right here. Uh, my old book from 1970, so you'd like it, right? You'd like the little book. Uh, David Hackett Fisher's Historian's Fallacies Towards a Logic of Historical Thought. <clears throat> and so in the book, he talks about fallacies as falling into error as opposed to the other definitions, right? So just like we talked about with opinions, uh, Supreme Court opinions versus other types of opinions. That's just your opinion, man. It's your opinion, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this <laughs> For historical fallacies, it tends to be a little bit of a of a broader and more emphasis on informal fallacies. And so I talk about them as being bad arguments or pitfalls that can lead to erroneous conclusions. And that doesn't necessarily mean um, leading to untruths either, right? Because you can have a some malicious argumentation and you can actually still be right, <laughs> interestingly enough. Right, 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 yeah. It, it mm -hmm. is, you know, a pitfall that makes it more likely that you're going to be wrong. So they're like potholes or booby traps to erode, to, you know, avoid. Yeah. And, and I'm teaching an intro to logic book right now that uh, has a, a lovely fallacious, but true argument. Uh, yeah. David Hasselhoff is a whale. Whales are carnivores. Therefore, David Hasselhoff eats meat. 
Yep. And it's like, well, I mean, if, if in fact David Hasselhoff ate a steak, that's a true argument, but <laughs> the uh, premises are entirely untrue. It's logically valid. Yeah, but totally untrue. Uh, yeah, so I guess the for for me, okay, and maybe I did not succeed in this goal, right? So I don't know. You, I mean, who knows? Um, but I was trying to get away from <clears throat> talk like you know that these things are like you know vices or bad habits or their um, misguided tendencies or whatever, because rather than coming across as being you know shaking my finger and being like, no, no, these are, you know, errors and vices and you're very, very bad if you do these. I mean, who doesn't do these things? I do these things all the time, right? You're very, very bad. Um, instead, <clears throat> and I don't want to, <laughs> maybe this is not the best phrase to use, but it's maybe a trigger for some people, but instead I wanted it to be more of a unquote, safe space for students to uh, try to recognize and say, oh, you know, I've, I've done this in my writing and I don't know, maybe we can talk about this later, but the reason why is because I actually, I did this on almost totally a whim in a class uh, many moons ago now where I just was like, let's just teach some historical logic and historical fallacies and students latched onto that, right? Like I was- Oh crazy. yeah, yeah. They loved it, and I had no idea. And they, the response is actually of students in class, whereas if I think of it would have been framed other ways, they would not have been as receptive. The response of students in class was actually like we had great discussions, and they were saying things. Like, I distinctly remember a student saying, oh, my gosh, I've been doing this. She actually didn't say gosh, but oh, my gosh, I've been doing this in my papers for years and I didn't know it. And I was just, wow, you know? So yeah, so my intention was to, and we can maybe, again, drill deeper if you want into whether or not this was a good call on my part, but the intention was to group these things together <clears throat> to provide students with this uh, toolkit to enable them to have this aha moment like okay so for example I, I did I didn't say mention this in the book it just kind of I just kind of thought of it now because it's how I guess I think about it but maybe I didn't articulate it in the in the book uh so you're a you're the you're the Christian humanist right so you know like sure, memory sure. so you know like memory palaces like in Cicero oh absolutely yeah yeah right uh-huh and like um like with the famous Jesuit Matteo Ricci in China and um like Hannibal Lecter and Sherlock Holmes use them, right? And Hannibal Lecter's like evil, so not him, but like, you know. Uh, so so maybe like, <clears throat> I guess kind of how I think of it is in your memory palace, right? You've got this room and we can label it fallacies, right? And in there, you've got all of the equipment that you would need to be able to identify these possible pitfalls that you see in sources or your own writing and maybe on the couch in this particular room in your memory palace. You've got the pillows of formal fallacies and there's like the bookcase with the shelves of the books of informal fallacies. And so it's all over. Okay, so far so good. Anyway, so I, yeah, so to me mentally, maybe I just think really spatially, I don't know. I'll have to ponder that about myself, I guess, after this. 
but that was my thinking behind, although not explicitly like that, but that was part of my thinking behind grouping them uh, together in that way. Okay, very good. I want to turn and, uh, and investigate one of them, but actually before I do, I want to tell a quick story, and I usually don't do uh, meta discourse on this podcast, but it, it, it's just too amusing to me. Uh, just recently, I had the philosophers, uh, well, actually only one of them, because one of them was sick with COVID. So it was either, uh, oh no, and now I've forgotten which first name goes with the last name. So it's, it was either Larry Shapiro, Stephen Nadler, Stephen Shapiro, or Larry Nadler, one of those four. Uh, and only two of them exist. But uh, it's interesting because their recent book, uh, When Good ha- when Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, absolutely treats uh, logical fallacy as a moral vice. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you're not yeah. going that way because, you yeah. know, the stereotype would be that a, a pair of uh, atheist philosophers wouldn't do as much moralizing as a Lutheran historian. But, you know, that, that the world is surprising, is it not? <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I do want to go to one of these fallacies. We all original sin inbred into us. And so far be it from me, right? This, our, our brains are corrupted. And so far be it from me to identify this. There as you intellectual go. vice okay there you go there you go i'm not gonna judge you or call you out on that <laughs> i do want to ask about you know one of the fallacies that you go to is really a pair of fallacies is the appeal to novelty and the appeal to tradition mm-hmm. and you know i mean the basic structure is the appeal to novelty is it's newer therefore it's better the appeal to tradition is it's older therefore it's better um but back to the crap test that we talked about earlier I mean, one of those criteria is currency. So if it's newer, it's better. So I don't think that's a contradiction, but I'm not sure how they relate to each other. So how do they relate to each other? Okay. So boy, I should have had you as a peer reviewer, Nathan, you're good. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So, you know, I'd say, so currency, you know, as I say, you know, basically is different because that's about, you know, it's good or sorry, I should say that this idea of something the fallacious idea of something being good is because it's, you know, new, this progressive fallacy, you know, that's just, it's, it's, it's good because it's new, right? Whereas something being current in the sense of evaluating a source, right? In this case, it's more reliable because the currency entails access to more recent discoveries and data, right? So therefore, you have the evidence necessary to make the strongest possible interpretation. Now, to the degree that the source you're looking at be it current or not, be it from a second ago or not, doesn't do that, then currency matters less as a marker of a strong secondary source, right? So again, that currency might not matter as much if it's irrelevant that you have more recent data, it's irrelevant if there's more recent, like I say, could be discoveries or whatever. Uh, which is why we have things like you say, like classics in the field, or why you want to go back to the period prior to publish and perish or something. <laughs> something like that. That, that's just me being old and grumpy, though. So yeah, don't, 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 don't put too much so stock I, in that. Like you tell already which fallacy you would you would orient yourself towards, right? It's that's it's the traditionalist fallacy, isn't it? See, I can. Tell. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the difference, right? Is that. The, the, the fallacy is just it's good because it's now, right? Everybody's doing it. So there's bandwagon fallacy, right? Everybody's doing it. It's new. It's now. And so therefore, it's true, right? It's good. 
uh, as opposed to, well, because it's more recent, you know, that means that this source is going to have more recent data discoveries, interpretations. It's able to interact with more other people in the conversation, the historiography, that kind of thing. Very good, very good. And listeners, I, you know, one of the things that I, I hope you're hearing here is that this book introduces college students to a range of questions. It doesn't settle things, but it does raise questions that a lot of times incoming students aren't raising. So, I mean, you know, that honestly, I mean, is, is one of the, the best jobs that this book does. I want to talk about one more uh, fallacy in this, in this bookshelf, because we're not on the couch right now, we're on the bookshelf. Um, yeah. And that is the emotional appeal. And the reason I'm curious about it is that uh, you know, Aristotle in his, his treatise on rhetoric, which is one that I teach with some frequency, uh, talks about appeal to emotion and incitement of emotion, really, not as an invalid enthymeme, which is his phrase for a fallacy, but as one of the core practices. This is something you got to get good at if you're going to do rhetoric. So why do your students encounter emotional appeals as fallacies rather than things to be learned? Yeah, good question. So it would depend on genre, okay? And so it, earlier in the book, before the fallacies section, I talk about, um, you know, genre and things, I think in terms of like being in different rooms of a house again. So look, here I am thinking spatially again, right? Like, oh, very good, very good. I have like a romance novel room or something. And I think that's in there. Right? And I, in, the, in the first draft, I said, there's Fabio on the couch. And they were like, you have to cut that because nobody knows who Fabio is, like as students anymore. <laughs> I, I still know who Fabio Thank is. Thank you, I appreciate okay. it. <laughs> so, it comes down to genre. So what I'm gearing towards in the that later part of the book is what I guess for maybe just off the top of my head, right, would be academic research papers. And so when we're thinking about, so when I'm in my inquiry and expression class, my retcon class, right, we're, we're talking about the rhetorical triangle, obviously, right? So we're talking about logos, pathos, um, ethos, you know. Right, whatever. the three musketeers. Uh-huh. Right. The, the three musketeers, you know, and all that. And so depending on, and, and they're writing in a, in a variety of genres. By the way, my students don't get that joke anymore, which makes me very sad. <laughs> I get it. We're on the same page. So, yeah, so in, in that class, you know, I'll say, here's, here's your assignment. Here's the context of it. Here's your audience, right? Here's what we're trying to do. And so in those cases, maybe it's, you know, more appropriate to lean on a different part of the rhetorical triangle. So depending on the genre, the, the context, the audience, that's going to determine what part of that triangle you're going to be leaning on. So if we're talking about an academic research paper in history or in, you know, uh, poli-sci, even, you know, biology like a lab report, I mentioned the book too, um, you're going to be leaning a lot more harder, a lot harder on, on logos, right, than you are on emotional appeals or something like that. On the other hand, that's not to say that that's not, you know, it's totally irrelevant. Uh, I think there are still places if I was, you know, if the book was longer or if I was, you know, teaching a course or something, <clears throat> I would certainly say, you know, there, there's probably a place maybe in your conclusion or something where you could bring in some of that uh, type of rhetoric <clears throat> into your, um, into your assignment, but that's not going to be the meat of it, right? The meat of it is going to be evidence and presenting it in a certain logical way with um, ex with explanations. <clears throat> I would just toss this out there in terms of 
paper assignments and things like that. One of my random administrative gigs at Aquinas College where I teach is I'm the facilitator for this writing, uh, this is a really long weird name, for this writing artifact evaluation exercise. Anyway, we have these writing intensive courses, right, at Aquinas. I, I think okay, okay, that, that term I know. Yeah, right. so <laughs> writing intensive courses as part of our general education. And so everybody has to have a writing intensive course. I prefer to call them writing instruction because it sounds nicer and it's the same, it's WI. Doesn't that sound nicer? It does, it does. Yeah, it does, but whatever. Anyway, they're called writing intensive. That's scary, I think. And so anyway, so as part of our assessment of this, then we collect, I, I collect uh, samples from the instructors, right? So a randomized sample. And we go through them and take a look at how the students in the class have been doing uh, in their writing. And we use uh, the AACU, the, um, the American Association of Colleges and Universities uh, written communication value rubric that they put out. Right? <clears throat> and the first assessment area in that that we look at is where it talks about <clears throat> context and purpose. And so that's looking at, it's like, yeah, I, I have to like gather samples right now, so I should know this, but it's it's looking at like audience. Uh, by, by the way, this is the work that I'm going to be doing as soon as yeah. the recording stops. Oh, yeah. So I I, oh, I am yeah. absolutely with you on that. Yeah, so I, I, I I'm in charge of our uh, institution's general education competency review every year. Okay, yeah, boy, <laughs> I feel you. I feel. Oh like, man, I feel you so much. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, my my my, my favorite day of the year, I'm pretty sure, is the day that I send that to our academic vice president, and I'm done with it for another year. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not the director. So the director of our gen ed program is another historian. I, I just facilitate the writing part. So I just do the writing part but of the assessment. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, so one really important thing when it comes to assignments, and as a, a college instructor, as a professor, it took me a while to figure this out and you know, I'd have to have good mentors to make it more clear to me was that we have to make clear to students what the context and purpose of this assignment is, or how are they supposed to know what genre they're supposed to be writing in, right? Like, how do they right. know that it's not supposed to be entirely an emotional appeal? Yep. Why would you know, right? Like, that needs to be, that absolutely needs to be made explicit. And we can't just expect people to read our minds and know, you know, what part of that rhetorical triangle is the most appropriate in any given assignment. Right, so, right. A call for doing that if you're a listener and you're a college professor. Yes, yes. I I, uh, I, I also lead a series of workshops for new faculty, and we spend a fair bit of time uh, talking about uh, verbs in writing assignments and how different verbs mean different things, and we need to tell our students what different verbs mean. And you know, uh, on on one level, it is it seems very simple, but that's because we have as you know holders of doctorates. We've lived with it for a decade or more. So our students, for the most part, have not. So, yeah, absolutely. Can I just hop in on verbs for a second? By all means. Maybe some random. I'm, I'm a rhetoric uh, professor. I love verbs. Okay, yeah. Okay, well, I this is related to, like, active and passive voice, actually. Okay, go. All right, go. So, actually, this is related to the email you had sent to me earlier. I know one of the things you were, you were wondering about was this um, abstraction or uh, replication fallacy or... Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we didn't have time to really get to that. But uh, one of the reasons I think that's an important one for students to think about is because 
you want to know who's doing the action. We could talk more, more philosophically about the difference between any, you know, idealism versus historical materialism and how to parse that out. But I didn't get into it in the book because it's a whole debate. But anyway, the reason why I tend to harp on active versus passive voice with my students and papers is not because I want to be a grammar uh, cop or something, but because especially in history, we want to know who's doing the action. And if you're doing passive voice, then I don't know. It's oftentimes hidden, right? And I know that's right in say biology or something depending on again the genre but mm -hmm. it's not necessarily because we're trying to be some kind of grammar police but because it's important to know who's doing the action right right and i mean that i mean relates to Karl marx's notion of ideology right i mean ideology is when you take something that someone did and they could have done otherwise but you pretend that it is natural and in inevitable mm -hmm. and you know it is that pretense of inevitability that constitutes ideology, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely on the same page with you. When I teach that, incidentally, I use the uh, rhetorician Kenneth Burke's categories, agent and action. And uh, if, if you ever run into someone who took freshman writing with me and you say that pair of words, agents and actions, uh, it'll be like you just triggered the winter soldier uh, because they do, listeners, if you don't know that reference, go look it up. But, you know, they <laughs> Uh, that they have done hundreds of exercises where I give them sentences where either the agent doesn't appear yeah. or the agent is deferred into a prepositional sentence. And all they do is rewrite the sentence so that the agent is in the subject. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. So I, I'm, I'm absolutely a kindred spirit on that one. Yeah. Agent <laughs> is huge. I mean, just in terms of what's the overall agent that we're talking about, like in terms of historical, you know, philosophy, you know, what's the agent that's moving history forward and you, you think about more broadly but also just in an, any given even like say sentence level right like what is the right name? right and i always tell them it can be a who or a what yeah but they need to name it right so here at the end because i am i am looking at the clock and we're running up on time i want to address one of the phenomena that has complex internet roots and a singular turning point that is the product of sheer professional wrestling stagecraft and that term of course is fake news and I don't like the terms ambiguity, but I do lay some of the blame for its ubiquity at the door of the online progressive community who seemed not to see it coming when Donald Trump took a term that they had been flogging for the second half of 2016 and reversed it and dropped the stone cold stunner on him. Uh, I think that's a paraphrase of one of your chapters. But these days, I don't even use that phrase. I prefer to say bot generated content because that phrase is not catchy at all and no one's likely to grab hold of it and turn it into something evil. Uh, but what is your case for returning to the phrase fake news in spite of the fact that Donald Trump and his online minions have reversed it? I just, I just love the fact that you use the phrase Stone Cold Stunner like so much. All I can think of is like so cool Steve Austin, like cracking open like a six pack and like dumping the beer everywhere. But um, anyway, okay, sorry. Well, well, that that is one of the distinctives of, of Donald Trump. He's the only president to be impeached twice. Uh, you know, he's the, I'm trying to think of the, uh, the other big one. Uh, but I, the, I can't remember the third one. But the other one, the one I was going to finish with is, uh, he is the only former president to have been on the receiving end of a Stone Cold Stunner <laughs> when he was a performer in the WWF. So that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Why fake <laughs> <Yeah>. news? 
the fake news. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Like, honestly, <laughs> progressives should have seen that coming when they, you know, kept harping on this. And then he's like, no, you're the fake news, right? You mainstream media. And it was that um, easy. It was that easy. Yeah, it was that easy. It was that easy. And now, um, yeah, most pretty much all of my conservative in the sense of, I, I, I'm careful about using the word conservative. Um, yeah, Trumpist is usually the adjective I use. Yeah, okay, let's use that. Because I'm a conservative politically, but I'm not a Trumpist. Um, so most of my Trumpist, um, you know, friends and family would uh, use fake news in the sense of like CNN or like mainstream media, yep. right? Yeah, they would associate that with. So fair enough, you know, and I think actually um, really good question. Um, probably something I should have thought more about, to be honest, when I was writing the book. But I think for right now, um, I'm probably going to go with my stick with my initial gut decision to use that one as opposed to something else, just because it's a term that students know. And to me, I think it's easier to talk about it because they they have some basis for having an idea of what it is and deprogram as opposed to using something like bot generated content um just because in my it's an ugly phrase isn't it well it's i i engineered it to be ugly (laughs) i don't think students know what bots are oh true enough true enough no that's that's an absolutely valid point because we've talked about bots like and because I had this assignment recently, like I said, about the Russia-Ukrainian war, and this came up, and they don't know what bots are. So uh, it, that would just, you know, and I, I also just, based on, you know, just people on the street, I don't think most people on the street actually know what a what bot that would mean either. So I think okay, it's fair enough, fair enough. more difficult to kind of build up, um, explain what a bot is, <laughs> bot-generated content, and how that works in terms of you know, um, Twitter uh, tweet chains and, and things like this than it is to deprogram fake news a little bit because you don't have to have as much of kind of a tech side of things to understand that. Okay, that makes good sense. Well, Bethany, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about research, fallacies, or whatever else as we head for the door? All right. Uh, so last word, this might seem somewhat contradictory to the main thrust of the book, although I don't actually think it is. Uh, but so in the spirit of this being the Christian humanist podcast, I will let my last words be those of the great historian, Sir Herbert Butterfield, his last words in Christianity and history, which were hold to Christ and for the rest to be totally uncommitted. Bethany Kilcrease, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you for having me so much, Nathan. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Falsehood and Fallacy, How to Think, Read, and Write in the 21st Century from University of Toronto Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.